I have a lot of information in this message. Some of it may be new to some of you. Hopefully not not uh, the majority of you. But you will have to listen closely as I prayed. And if you don't uh, catch it the first time around, you may want to go online and, and listen again. Psalm 18, verse 30. This is a good scripture. I don't have it on the screen. Some of you I know, I'm sure know it. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. And that word proven is the Hebrew word seraph. It's used of, of metals like gold and, and silver or unmixed wine, speaking of their purity something that has been tried, tested by fire, and perfected. That's the word of God. Psalm 119, verse 140, says, Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. Amen? Amen. Daniel 12, 10, he received revelations concerning the end times from the angel, and he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. That would be the end times, the very end of the end times. Many shall be purified, made white, and refined. And there's your Hebrew word, seraph, tried. But the wicked will do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. One more verse here from Psalm chapter 26, verse 2. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me, try my mind and my heart. And that's a prayer of David for divine scrutiny to ensure that there, there is no hypocrisy in him. So the words examine, prove, and try include the means in which the reality of anything is tested. So this is a call for a very thorough self-examination. Examine me. Prove me, try me, O Lord. Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts or anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, O God. Try, my, try me. Psalm 119. Verse 9, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. O Lord, let me not wander from your commandments. And then I think the verse we all know, Psalm 119, verse 11, your word have I what? Hidden in my heart that I might what? not sin against you. So the agent by which we examine ourselves is the word of God. And when it comes to seeking direction from the Lord, I would say likewise, do not go by your feelings or experiences when making decisions because the power of self-deception is very real. It can lead you astray. There's an interesting passage in the book of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. 2 Peter 1.16, 
For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is the Father speaking. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. This was truly a mountaintop experience, literally, on the Mount of Transfiguration. You and I have never had such an experience. But in a way, we have something better than seeing Jesus temporarily like they did, even though it's hard to top that, right? They were eyewitnesses of his, of his majesty, the unveiling of his glory for a very brief period of time. But we have the inspired and infallible scriptures that's something even more, right? And, it, and it's, it's with us, not just for a moment. It's with us all our life. So Peter says, we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. The King James says this, we have a more sure word of prophecy. And the word sure there is bebeos. It means steadfast or firm. So Peter was referring to the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. And really it was descriptive of the whole Old Testament scripture. So he was looking to the scriptures and the revelation of Jesus confirmed the reality of the written word. But Peter is saying we would do well if we look to the word of God. And you know what? Peter didn't even have the complete Bible. Right? He had the Old Testament scriptures. How much more do we have now? How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in God's excellent word? What more can be said than to you he hath said? To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Does God need to say any more to us concerning his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, other than what has already been revealed? I don't think so. We have the Holy Scriptures. We have it all in the Holy Scriptures. We have his preexistence. We have the Christophanies in the Old Testament. We have the many prophecies about him, the record of his incarnation, his virgin birth, his public ministry, his miracles and his teachings, his death and his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God, the prophecies about his coming again. Remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus when Jesus drew near to them? It says in the scripture that beginning at where? Moses, the books of the law, and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus always pointed people back to the scriptures, to the word of God. So I hope we all agree that we do not need, 
nor should expect anything pertaining to revelation about Jesus more than what we already have. There's nothing beyond the scriptures that we should be looking for concerning Christ. Where the disagreement comes in is with the question, is God saying any more to us in the personal matters and decision-making in our lives outside Scripture? That would be additional or special revelation. So as part of the series I'm doing on discerning the will of God, I've been examining some popular methods, we could say teachings, on discerning God's will. Talked about God speaking in an audible voice, God speaking in a still small voice, what some people call inner impressions or promptings or Holy Spirit nudgings. And then last week we looked at the story of Gideon putting the fleece out, asking God for a sign, which many people do. Now, I have never done that, but contemporary Christian culture has pushed this idea of, of asking for a sign or signs as normative. This is something you should be doing. May I suggest that asking God for a sign is never enough? People always seem to look for more rather than the sufficiency of what God has already revealed in his word. So rather than asking God for some personal signs or directions in my life, I have dedicated myself to properly interpreting and applying the inspired word. And let me say to you that that is not an easy task. It takes a lot of devotion and it takes a lot of time that you have to give to Bible study using the proper rules of hermeneutics. You've heard that big word, right? The science of Bible interpretation. So your goal is to arrive at the only true meaning of a Bible passage, which is not yours, not mine, but the meaning the author intended. That's what you are trying to get to when you study the Bible. So you can mark this down and, and it will serve you well the rest of your life, especially if you are young. A Bible verse can never mean what it never meant. Right? A Bible verse can never mean what it never meant. Can never mean what the author never intended it to mean. So we need to look at a couple books here. I'll just put them up here for you to help. Maybe give you a little bit of idea of some things you can get for. This is Roy Zuck, Basic Bible Interpretation, a practical guide to discovering biblical truth. Now, that's a good book. This is another one I have up here. I read this one very early on in my Christian life, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It's full of gems. It's not long. A guide to understanding the Bible. It'll keep you out of a lot of trouble. And then something much more difficult is the next one, is Exegetical Fallacies by D.A. Carson. This gets into some technical stuff, but it's really, it's really worth it because you hear things that are not true. Like, well, the root of the word, you know, means this, therefore the word means that. And that's an exegetical fallacy known as the root fallacy. And he goes into all sorts of examples of these things. Exegesis is drawing out the meaning of a text. 
rather than reading your interpretation into a text. So this morning, I'd like us to consider two more popular methods of discerning God's will. I'm not, I don't advocate these. I'm addressing these. Remas and open doors. What in the world is a rima? Well, hopefully you'll find out, right? Lagos. Lagos, the Greek word lagos and rima are both Greek words for the word word. Right? Lagos is a concept word in the Bible, symbolic of the nature and function of Jesus Christ, or can also be used and primarily is used to refer to the Bible or some portion of the Bible as the word of God. The Lexham Bible Dictionary states that Lagos is frequently used to refer to the revelation of God in the world. It's a noun that occurs 330 times in the Greek New Testament. Of course, the word doesn't always, in fact, it usually doesn't carry symbolic meaning. Its most basic and common meaning is word, speech, utterance, message, logos. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. This, of course, is referring to who? Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 1 confirms this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, think of the apostle, his relationship to Jesus, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the logos of life. He uses logos there, pertaining to Jesus. Luke 5, 1, it says, so it was as the multitude pressed about him, that's Jesus, to hear the logos of God that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. So there in Luke 5, 1, it's referring to the teachings of Jesus, the logos of Jesus. Now, I want you to, to note this morning that this word logos has a very wide semantic range. Listen carefully. The idea that Greek words have a very precise meaning some people say Lagos refers to the totality of Scripture, is not always true. Greek words do not always have precise meanings. Many times they have a wide semantic range. 1 Corinthians 1.5, Paul said, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance. And in that passage, 1 Corinthians 1 5, he uses the word logos for utterance. And that fits the basic, very basic meaning of the word logos, an utterance. Matthew 12 36. But I say to you that for every idle word, that's the Greek word rima, men may speak, they will give account. Lagos is the word of it in the day of judgment. So here, Lagos means an accounting. And in secular Greek, Lagos was, was used also in the early stages for a mathematical term. So it, so it can mean accounting, given accounting. Acts 10.29, therefore I, Peter, came without objection as soon as I was sent for, and that was by Cornelius, 
I ask then, for what reason or intent, and he uses the Greek word logos, have you sent for me? So now logos means reason. It meant utterance. It meant accounting. It meant reasoning. Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, as though living in the world, why do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things that perish with their using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. And then he says this in Colossians 2, chapter 20, these things indeed have an appearance. Guess what word he uses there? Guess what word? Lagos. They have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, the neglect of the body, but are of little value against the indulgence of of the flesh. So Lagos is used to speak of an utterance, to speak of an accounting, to speak of an intention or a reason, to speak of an appearance. It's a wide semantic range for that word. There's more than that. Lagos Bible software. There's a staff article on Lagos, and they say this. Lagos, in its standard meaning, designates a word, speech, or the act of speaking. Acts 7.22. Lagos, in its special meaning, refers to the special revelation of God to people. Mark 7.13. Lagos, in its unique meaning, personifies the revelation of God as Jesus the Messiah. We saw that in John chapter 1, verse 1, John chapter 1, verse 14. So that's logos. Now we, we look at the word rima, rima, from roheo to speak. This common meaning of this word is an utterance, either collectively to a group of people or specifically to one person. It says in Luke 5, 5, that when he had stopped speaking, Jesus said to Simon, launch out into deep, launch out into the deep and, and let down your nets for a catch. You're all familiar with that story. It's a beautiful story. But Simon answered and said, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your rima, I will let down the net. So rima there means what? A command. A command from Christ. Charismatic theology views Rima as the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to them at the present moment. It's found everywhere in Pentecostal circles. The word faith movement. Pioneer was Kenneth Kenneth Hagen, Rima Bible College. Rima Bible College. It's popular in the New Apostolic Reformation. NAR, Advocates of the Fivefold Ministry, the Latter-day Reign Movement, and it's an endless, endless movements and groups that propagate this idea. Ephesians 4.11 says, He gave himself, this is Jesus, when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. He gave some to be apostles, sent ones, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers. So that's their basis for what they call the five-fold ministry. And they believe that the five-fold ministry, based on Ephesians 4.11, is a call for the restoration of the offices of apostles and prophets, as well as an evangelist's pastors and teachers. 
hence the name the New Apostolic Reformation. Bill Heyman was the founder of Christian Ministries International and the Apostolic Prophetic Movement. He says this, a rima is an inspired word birthed within your spirit, a whisper from the Holy Spirit, like the still small voice that spoke to Elijah in the cave. It is the divinely inspired impression on your soul, a flash of thought or a creative idea from God. That's how he describes Rima. Now, one man who popularized those, this meaning of Rima was someone who I am unfortunately well familiar with, Bill Gothard. Bill Gothard. There were people that I've known who tried to get me into Bill Gothard. They were unsuccessful. I took one look at his literature, more than one look at his abuse of scripture and misuse of the Old Testament, and I said, no thanks. In the New Testament, Gothard says this, the Greek words logos and rima are both translated word. True. However, they are not synonymous for the same idea, but each have precise biblical meanings. False as do all words in scripture. False. Lagos, he says, is generally used to refer to the totality of the word of God as well as the person of Christ, and it can be. Before I get to his definition of Rima, let me tell you just a little bit about him. Bill Gothard came on in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s, when America was in turmoil, kids were doing drugs, kids had long hair, rebellion was everywhere, parents were frustrated, they didn't know how to raise godly kids, husbands didn't know how to raise you know, their families. So he came on, he was a professing non-charismatic evangelical. He founded the Institute of Basic Life Principles called IBLP in 1961. Then he started the Advanced Training Institute of America called ATIA, a homeschool curriculum for parents in 1984, based on a whole series of wisdom booklets. Both of those organizations have been plagued with scandals. And if you have seen the documentary, Shiny Happy People, about the Duggar family, you get an idea, a little idea, of what IBLP and ATIA were like. They left spiritual casualties all across the American landscape. Why? Because shepherds were not guarding their flocks. And they were allowing this stuff into their churches. And people were consuming it. He was immensely popular. Look at this picture of the basic seminar. All across America, he was running coliseums or stadiums, or whatever you, you want to call it. Large venues conducting these seminars. And here's what he says. His definition of a rima. Rima is generally used to refer to the spoken word given by a living voice, that would be the Holy Spirit, and is used to describe particular messages that are given to individuals for their personal application. Got it? Bible verse jumping off a page, put it back in its context. It's likely not for you, 
as you would want it to be. He says, God speaks personally to you through the Bible by means of remas. A rima is a very a verse or a portion of scripture that the Holy Spirit brings to your attention with application to a current situation or need for direction in your life. So you can get personal direction through these divinely inspired remas from God's Word. In fact, he offers a daily rima journal. And I'm not making this up because you can't make this up. He offers a PhD from Embassy University, which he says is acknowledged by the Florida Department of Education. You can get a PhD by memorizing remas while you sleep, in addition to other coursework. I don't know what you end up with, a degree in rheumatology, something like that. I'm not sure. Now, if you believe that, I'll give you $1 for a $3 bill. All right. Here's the journal that you could buy. Don't buy it. Notice what it says? Daily Rima Journal. Notice what it says? Hearing God's voice. You want to hear God's voice? Right here, right? In the scripture. Here's how he uses this. He says this. One example. One day, God appealed to the, to the meaning of my name, William, which means protector. Maybe it doesn't. With the following Rima. So God is speaking to him, using his name, and giving him this Rima, special revelation. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. If you forbear to deliver them that are drawn to death and those who are ready to be slain. If you say, behold, we knew it not. Doth not he that ponders the heart considers it? And he that keepeth your soul, doth not he not know it? And shall he not render to every man according to his works? Proverbs chapter 24, verses 10 through 12. Here's what Gothard said. This Rima gave me further boldness in pursuing the program that would allow parents to train their daughters at, sons and daughters at home, ATIA. Came into existence as a way of, by, by way of a Rima. Here's my comment on this. Gothard never received a single Rima from God for personal direction. He was using the scripture like Play-Doh, molding it, fitting it to what he wanted it to say. One commentator on this passage in, in Proverbs 24 says this, those stumbling toward death could be literal prisoners who have been presumably wrongfully condemned to die. The reader is to take extraordinary measures to secure the release, their release. A dramatic modern example would be the extermination of the Jews in Europe in the Second World War. The story of Esther is one wonderful example of someone who did deliver those who were drawn toward death. Esther's courage saved her people, even when it would have been easier for her to ignore her duty. A scripture can never mean what it never meant. Proverbs 24, 10 through 12 was not God telling Gothard to start ATIA. We can't use scripture like that. Lagos and Rima 
are used interchangeably in the Bible. Synonymous. That was true as far back as the third century before Christ. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew known as the Septuagint, abbreviated by LXX, the Greek translation reads this, Jeremiah 1.1, the word Rima of God, which came to Jeremiah. And then in the next verse, and there's many examples of this, in verse 2, the word Lagos of God, which came to him. So the translators understood then, 250 years before Christ, that these words can be used interchangeably or synonymously. So when people say they're not, that's not true. John 15, 3, you are already clean because of the logos which I have spoken to you. Jesus speaking to his disciples. Ephesians 5, 24, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the rima, the word. So the logos of scripture cleanses and the what? The rima of scripture cleanses. So David Watson in 1982 called and committed world-changing discipleship. Harold Shaw Publishers, Wheaton, Illinois, pages 110 through 12. In no New Testament dictionary or Greek lexicon of any substance can the claim distinction between the two words be found. The massive weight of evidence shows that there is no clear distinction to be made between Lagos and Rima in Scripture. Different applications, basic meaning, most predominant meaning, utterance, speech, word. Sometimes referring to the whole of the word of God, sometimes to a portion of the word of God, sometimes to groups of people, sometimes to specific people. Are you following me? Both describe speech, logos and, and rima. Both describe speech or utterance, unless it's referring to Christ as the logos, and the context must determine the nature of the speech or the utterance. But God doesn't give personal remas to certain Christians who are seeking them and using them out of context. So I'm going to put this little statement up here. It's important. There is not a single text in the Bible that says a Christian should listen to an inner voice or inner witness to decide in matters Scripture does not directly address. Not a single verse or text that tells you to do that. But a lot of people are telling you to do that. So Greg Kokel, this is interesting. I'm studying this subject, and I was reading about Bill Gothard and my old friend Don Vino, who wrote a book about Bill Gothard and his many, many, many errors. And in that book, just the other day, that I, or in that article that I was reading, he referenced Greg Kokel from Stand to Reason, which is an apologetics organization, and an article that he just recently wrote a couple days ago called Silly Putty Bible Study. That's what a lot of Christians do. Now, if you're older, you know what Silly Putty was. I don't know if the younger kids do. So we didn't have computers and we didn't have all these electronic, we, we, we 
it's silly putty. I never did, <laughs> but a lot of kids did. I never did, never did use silly putty. Play-Doh, yes. Silly putty Bible study. This is what he just recently wrote. There is no biblical justification for finding private per personal messages in texts originally intended by God to mean something else. Where does scripture advance the idea that the Holy Spirit changes the meanings of the words of the text for individual readers? Where does the Bible teach that private messages lurk between lines, waiting only for the Holy Spirit's touch to bring them to life? Where does God's word suggest the relativistic take the verse out of context for my own private use approach? It's not there. If you think God is telling you something through Scripture that is not connected to the meaning of the words in their context, it can't be God, because he chose to communicate through language, not around it. God will not twist, distort, or redefine his own word for our private consumption. That is silly, putty Bible study. So I put point three down here for you. We must never decontextualize, that's taking out of context, a Bible verse to make it say something it was not intended to communicate. Now hear me, there are a lot of personal applications of Scripture, right? And God can really use Scripture to, to convict us and, and to change our behavior. But that is different, far different than saying you're getting a special communication from God by way of a rima. 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. Finish the verse. Rightly what? Dividing the word of truth. The, the New English translation says this, make every effort to present yourself before God as a proven worker who does not need to be ashamed, teaching the message of truth accurately. And if people aren't going to do that, they shouldn't be teachers because they're going to hold, be held to a greater accountability according to the Word of God. Teaching the Word of truth accurately. And you need the context in order to do that. How many of you have ever heard of John Newton? What, what really famous song did he write? Amazing Grace. When did he write it? Oh, back around 1794, somewhere around there. John Newton. Did you also know that he wrote a book, a booklet on knowing God's will? He did. Not a long booklet. But on page 8, 1794, the author of Amazing Grace wrote these words. People who use a text and disregard the context or daily comparing or duly comparing it with the general tender, uh, tenor of the word of God, commit the greatest extravagances, expect the greatest impossibilities, and contradict the plainest dictates of common sense while they think they have the word of God on their side. Experience has taught me that those who claim impressions or impulses are unwarily misled into great evils and gross delusions. There is no doubt, but the enemy of our souls, if 
permitted can furnish us with scriptures in abundance in this way and for this purpose. 1794, he had some discernment. Where has it gone? Where has it gone? Jesus says, if any man has ears to hear what? Let him hear. Let him hear. Jesus also said, take heed what you hear, right? He says, let him hear. Take heed what you hear. He also said, take heed how you hear. So it's really important that we take heed to those things. But he also said, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And his disciples didn't get it. So later on, he tells them what the leaven was, the doctrine, the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So right here, right here on this pulpit is a little plaque that says 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Away from the truth to fables. And boy, that's, that's, that's prevalent today. So let's talk a little bit about open doors. I like open doors. I've run into too many closed doors. Open doors and circumstances. I always remember what Jay, Jay Adams, Nuthetic Counselor said, sometimes an open door is an elevator shaft. So be careful. I have a question for you. That you're paying attention. How many decisions and actions of men and women are recorded in the Bible? I don't know the answer, right? My guess would be in the thousands, in the thousands. Significant decisions, life-altering actions, history-making decisions. Is there one instance of anyone making those decisions and actions, looking for an open door as an indication that God was directing their path. No, not one, not one. Some have referred to open doors as sign language, the sign language of God. Now, that's a problem for me because I can't interpret sign language, right? Even the advocates of those who teach open-door theology will tell you that it can be very misleading because there is a very fine line between reading them, the open doors, the signs, and reading into them. Very easy to do. We know that's true. So just briefly, what is an open door? by the advocates. An open door is allegedly a path or opportunity that God has cleared of obstacles. It's a green light to go. You're pondering all these things and, well, man, God opened the door. And then, well, then God opened another door. Green lights, all green lights. Go, go, go. At least initially, but we know this, an open door can suddenly what? Close. 
Because the open door is not an infallible indicator of God's direction, the proponents of it, not me, those who propose it say that it must be confirmed by other expressions of God's voice. And that's why I said earlier, one sign is never enough. I confirm these things over and over and over again. Let's look at the open doors of Scripture, okay? There's not that many. 1 Corinthians 16, 8, Paul says, I will tarry in Ephesus to Pentecost for a great and effective door has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Then over in 2 Corinthians 2, 12, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I didn't find Titus my brother, but taking leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. Last one, Colossians 4, beginning in verse 2. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open, open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I make it, may make it manifest how I ought to speak. Let me point out a couple of things, right? Observation. The number one rule of Bible interpretation, the very first basic rule, is observation, right? All three of the open-door passages had redemptive purposes in mind. Remember what I told you when God spoke, the voice of God spoke? It was almost always in the context of a redemptive purpose in the nation of Israel and then in the church. So all three of these open-door passages had redemptive purposes in mind. Gospel ministry in the days of early Christian work. None of them had to do with guidance in choosing where to live, what house to buy. Of course, they didn't have house cars, but what car to buy, right? If they did, what college to intend, what woman or man to marry, what job to take. None of them had anything to do with that. Now, I can also add Acts 14.27 to the list. Beginning in verse 25, when they preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atelia, Paul's first missionary journey. From there, they sailed to Antioch, where they commended to, were commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. When they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Again, it's pertaining to what? To gospel work, to the growth of the church. Secondly, all three of the passages indicate the obstacles and troubles that came with preaching the gospel. Just read the persecution that Paul faced on his first missionary journey prior to getting to Antioch. It was not an open door for the timid and the fearful. These open doors didn't lead to walks in the park. In Ephesus, Paul said he had many adversaries. When he prayed for an open door to speak the gospel in the Colossian passage, he was already in chains, already in prison. So I would say this to you, even when circumstances appear favorable for you to do ministry work for the Lord, and you have what seems like a good opportunity to serve the Lord, it still has to be carefully examined. You still need to seek wise counsel from others. You still need to check your motives out. I believe that the Lord, and we just had recently had them with us, prepared the Ewans for missionary work in Hong Kong. They had a desire to go there. James, growing up there, he already knew Cantonese. 
They worked hard to raise the support to get there. They sought wisdom from many people. And from the day that they arrived in Hong Kong, they faced many obstacles. Gospel work is not for those who will give up easily. The Ewans, the Rogers, the Angelis, the Mendozas, the Owens, the Wagnells, our missionaries, all served the Lord before they were ever directed to their current place of ministry or former place of ministry. The local church is the training ground for ministry, preparing you to serve the Lord. Now, Gary Gilley, he's a pastor in Illinois. He's written a lot of books, short ones. He wrote one called, Is That You, Lord? Question mark. Hearing God's voice. Now, here's what he says, kind of wrapping this up. There exists no teachings, commands, or examples or for the Holy Spirit indwelt New Testament Christians to seek God's individual will about anything. It's not shocking to most people. But you can't find it in the Bible. He's right. Not where to live, whom to marry, not even whether someone should be in full-time Christian ministry. In the New Testament, we find believers busy serving and living for the Lord, whatever their circumstances. We do not find them running about seeking a directive from God before they made decisions. Just get going. Just serve. Just start serving. And God will direct your paths. Now, brethren, you may, I mean, maybe, maybe you just say, oh, I don't agree with that. Surely it's there. Brethren, this is liberating. If you grasp what I'm saying, it's liberating. You have freedom to choose, young people. But choose wisely. And in the end, you can look back and you can see how God's sovereign will, which you can't know right now, unfolded in your life and how your paths were directed. And this truly is liberating. You don't need to be anxious over missing God's perfect will for your life because it doesn't exist. You don't have to seek further confirmation by signs or remas that you are going in the right direction. Just follow the word of God. Heed good counsel from wise people. You're going to make mistakes. We all do, right? You're going to make some decisions that aren't the best decisions. How many in here have made bad decisions? All of us would all put our hands up, right? That's life. It's part of figuring it out. Hopefully when you get wise, when you get older, your bad decisions are few and far between. Right? So that's all I have to say to you this morning. Stay away from this stuff. Stick with this book. 